the book of James. Today being the fourth Sunday of the month, our kids will actually stay with us in worship today. If you are here normally, you know that on any given month, in the first three Sundays of the month, we release our kids at this point to head upstairs and have a time of worship that is designed just for them on their level. But on the fourth Sunday of each month, we keep them with us throughout the whole service because we think it's important that they be able to worship as a part of the body. And also, this is a great time for them to learn as well and, and to uh, sit under our teaching and, and hear the message because it is designed to affect their hearts just as much as it is any of the rest of us. And so, together this morning, let's open to James chapter 1. We are working our way through the book of James, a series that we've entitled Faith That Works, because throughout his letter that he has written here to believers, James is teaching us how we can put our faith into action so that it's not just something that we give lip service to, but rather something that we really live out in a way, in a way that our faith becomes alive, that, it, that it's an active part of the way that we live. And so we want to see this morning how we can take this lesson uh, that, that he's going to give us. We're going to study verses 9 through 12 together and put it into practice in our lives, very practically apply these truths to the way that we live. And so James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, let's read together. Or James writes, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, as we study our way through the letter of James, we're going to find that oftentimes a, a very real connection, a very obvious connection even, between what James is writing and the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus delivered in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. In fact, a lot of scholars over the years have noted the obvious connection between the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James. Some have even go, gone so far as to say that you could practically consider the, the letter that James has written as uh, its own sort of commentary on the Sermon on the Mount itself, that, that you can study the Sermon on the Mount in such a way that you can use the letter that James has written as a companion that gives further explanation or even in some, at some points more practical application of how we're to take the different lessons that we find in the Sermon on the Mount and apply them. And it's obvious when we look at this passage this morning, the, the, the connection that exists, right? Because for one thing, there is, sort of a, there, there is sort of a backward order of things in what James is writing here, particularly in verses 9 and 10, and that seems to be that James is saying, let the lowly boast, let them rejoice in their exaltation, and let the rich boast in their humiliation, which if we are to study that, pairs very closely with the, the rhetoric and the ethic of what we would call the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. So if you turn to Matthew 5 and just scan through this, notice, the, notice what we have often called sort of the, the backward kingdom order here. In other words, Jesus takes something in, in the Beatitudes in these verses, Jesus takes something that we expect 
and he flips it on its head, essentially. So he says things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, so they shall be, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteous, righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So even in that, we see a connection, both for the, on, on the one hand in the language, the way that James writes, right? James says, rejoice in these things. Let the lowly brother boast. Let him rejoice in his exaltation. Let the rich brother rejoice in his humiliation. So there's a connection between this this language of rejoicing in things that, that on the surface anyway, don't appear to make sense. Why would we rejoice in being poor? Why would the rich want to rejoice in being humiliated? And yet, th- that connection with what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount helps us to understand that essentially what James is doing is he's applying a kingdom ethic to the way that we live, saying that we ought not to place our, our trust in the things of this world but instead we ought to hope in and rejoice in the things of God. And so let's break this down this morning. Let's, let's study this by, by considering in detail what it is that James is teaching us in these verses, verses 9 through 12 this morning. There's this, again, this, this, this kingdom wisdom that we find that goes against the grain, this kingdom wisdom that is not like the wisdom of this world, but is something different. Now, If you remember back to last week, last week we studied a passage that taught us that if anyone lacks wisdom, we should ask God and he will give it generously to us. Now, all of us lack wisdom. That was one of the key points that we understood last week. Every one of us lack wisdom. And that if we will humble ourselves to recognize our own lack of wisdom, and if we will seek wisdom from God, if we will ask wisdom from God, he will give it to us generously. Because God is wise, we saw, and that he gives wisdom generously to those who will ask it. And now we see, in a very practical sense, this wisdom come to bear in, in the fact that things that appear almost foolish to us make sense in God's kingdom because God's wisdom is not like our worldly wisdom. And so he teaches that the one who is poor should boast in his exaltation and the one who is rich in their humiliation. What, what does that mean? Well, let me give you a very rough translation of these verses. When you study in the, in the original language, when you study this word boast, let the, let the one boast, as it says in, uh, in verse 9, and, and it's implied, that verb is not stated explicitly, but implied in verse 10, that the lowly would boast, that the rich would boast. That word boast, it comes from the Greek word that we would, re- we would translate to mean boast or to rejoice or to, to glory in these things. In fact, some other English translations actually will use the word rejoice in their translation of this word. So the lowly to, are to rejoice in their exaltation. What well, doesn't seem that you're exalted if you're lowly, right? And the, the rich are to rejoice 
in their humiliation. Well, if you're rich, it doesn't seem that you're lowly or humiliated, right? But that wisdom makes sense when we consider things in light of God's eternal kingdom perspective. So roughly, we would translate verses 9 and 10 this way. I think this is a good rough translation. It's not, it's not necessarily from, from this if we follow it word for word. I don't mean to imply that this isn't a good translation. The ESV is actually a really excellent translation of this passage. But in order to make sense of it in a way that we might say it today, here's a rough translation. Let the lowly brother boast in his high position and let the rich brother boast in his low position. That's roughly the, the, the way that we could translate this. It certainly is true to the intent of this passage. So those who don't have a lot ought to rejoice in the fact that they have everything, and those who have seemingly everything ought to rejoice in the fact that it's nothing in light of God's eternal kingdom. That's the point of this passage this morning, right? So as we study this, I want us to see these words exaltation, humiliation, and even perseverance, I want us to zero in on these words to understand how understanding the meaning of these words, and, and particularly in the application to this context, will help us to, to make sense of what James is teaching here. So first, this word exaltation. He writes, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Well, what, what does he mean when he talks about the exaltation? You see in your notes, I've, I've given you this, that the lowly can rejoice in their exaltation knowing that their hope comes from Jesus Christ and not from their circumstances. So the point that James is driving home here is it does not matter how much stuff you have, right? It doesn't matter materially how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter what your circumstances have afforded you in this life. If you have Jesus, then friend, you have everything. And you ought to rejoice in the fact that in Christ, because of Jesus, you are exalted because you have a hope that is certain, a hope that is guaranteed, a hope that will not leave you stranded or leave you wanting for something more. And so the lowly can rejoice in their exaltation knowing that their hope comes from Jesus Christ and not from their circumstances. That is such an important point, isn't it? Because at some point in life, Every one of us can identify with the lowly brother here. Now, maybe, maybe not in a, in a material wealth sense, right? Some of us will go through life and, and you will never really want for anything materially, money-wise. You'll, you'll always have enough. But every one of us can relate when we consider this application in, in the sense of the, the spiritual and what it means to spiritually be poor and spiritually be wanting in our lives. And what we learn is that even when we are poor and wanting, we have everything that we need in Jesus. You know, when we think about this, it, it doesn't make sense on the surface that the lowly brother, the, the poor in other words, would boast in their exaltation. But again, given this kingdom this kingdom understanding, this kingdom application, we see that even though we may be poor in this life, it's, it's possible to be poor materially and yet to be rich spiritually. Because in God's kingdom, whether we are rich or poor has nothing to do with how much money is in your bank account, right? Or, or your net worth, uh, how, how much you have socked away for retirement, 
or what's in your 401k or, or that sort of thing, right? Has nothing to do in, in the eyes of the kingdom of God, has nothing to do with whether you are rich or poor, which is why Jesus teaches, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, you know, for they shall inherit the, the kingdom. The, Jesus teaches that, that those who seemingly have nothing, those who are crushed, those who are persecuted, those who are poor, those who face trouble and trial in this life ought to rejoice because they're blessed in the midst of that. You know, one of the things that I learned years ago in ministry, a, a simple but a profound lesson that has stuck with me over the years came actually in, in kind of an unlikely situation. So at, when I was a youth pastor years ago, we were reaching, uh, the, the church where I served was situated in, in such a place where it was really kind of on the border in, in, uh, in the city, in Oklahoma City. It was kind of on the border between a, a really rough area and a really wealthy area. We were kind of just sandwiched in the middle, and we were drawing people, the church, because of its location, we were drawing people from, from both sides of the tracks, if you will. And so it wasn't uncommon for us to reach people who lived in some of the wealthiest, nicest homes in all of Oklahoma City, and at the same time to reach people who lived in some of the most impoverished, run-down areas in the city. And that created a very unique dynamic in terms of the ministry and the makeup of our people. And so there was a period of time where we were really trying to seek some outside wisdom on how do we... How do we balance all of this. How do, we, how do we provide ministries? And now I'm thinking from a youth pastor's perspective, right, because I was serving in that role. How, how do I do ministry in an environment where I can, I can, I have some of the students that I reach that if I plan an event that, that costs, you know, $100, $200, it's nothing. They just write a check and it's no big deal, right? But then there are others that we're reaching that that, was, that made those ministry events completely out of reach and impossible. How do, we, how do we find the right balance in the blend? So we were really working through, just practically speaking, some of these questions. What do we do? How do we? And, and we turned to some answers from uh, an, an organization in that part of the city, uh, a ministry that was called Reach Our City. Rock was the name of this ministry. And I'll never forget the wisdom that the, the simple wisdom that the director of this rock outreach shared with us because we were talking about finding this balance. And he said, you know, when you study the scriptures, he said, you'll find that it's not a sin to be poor. Now, that was something that he said, I think, rather, rather off the cuff. I, I don't think he put a lot of thought into that, but it struck me to my core. You know, it's not, it's not a sin to be poor. And so we needed, in, in terms of the way that we were doing ministry and those things, we needed to make sure that the ministries that we were doing, we weren't aiming at trying to take poor people and make them rich. We were trying to take poor people and infuse the gospel into the midst of their poverty and their situation. At the same time, we weren't trying to take people who were rich or who had means and trying to demean that somehow. We were trying to take the gospel and infuse the gospel in the midst of the life that they lived and, and show them that their hope was not in their things and show the people who didn't have a lot of things that their hope wasn't in their lack of things. And it really began to transform the way that we did ministry and, and the, the eyes through which we saw the circumstances where we were. And, and here, was, here was a very practical application that God did in my own heart through that. 
the Lord taught me that poverty is not a sin, but poor stewardship is. And when we think about, think about that in, in relation to this particular passage, let the lowly rejoice, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being poor, with being impoverished, right? The Bible doesn't teach us that the answer is to work our way out of poverty, but the Bible does teach clearly that poor stewardship is a sin. And so here here's, is, is its application to this, this point, right? It doesn't matter how much stuff you have. It doesn't matter how much wealth you have. If you are wasting the resources that the Lord has given to you, then you're sinning against God. Then you're not living in light of this kingdom stewardship that, that James is teaching. So, listen, let's, let's make this very real in terms of uh, in, in Chickasha. In, in our community, we all know this. I'm not saying that, that anything that you don't know. But in, in our community, there literally is a right and a wrong side of the street to live on. You know what I'm saying? And here's the point. The gospel works regardless of your address, right? Regardless of which side of the street you live on, regardless of where you go to school or, or what your address is or where you shop for your clothes, regardless of how much money is in your bank account, it's not a sin to be poor. In fact, those who are poor should exalt that in reality, they have everything that they need through Jesus. What is a sin is to, is to mismanage, is to poorly steward what God has given you. Because the truth is that money can buy a lot of things, but money will never buy peace with God. And money will never buy the, 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 the elevation of your status before God. God is never going to look at someone who is rich and say, well done, my, 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 my rich servant, right? But regardless of our circumstances, if we are faithful to steward what God has given us, then he will one day look at those who, who honored him with what they had, and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So the, the point isn't whether we should try to get more or, or have less. The point is that regardless of what you have, if you, if you are lowly in the sense if you are if you are poor if you are impoverished then do everything you can with what God has given you and understand this truth that you have everything you need to honor God and to glorify him in this life because if you have Jesus then friend you are wealthy beyond anything that you deserve so let the lowly rejoice in their exaltation knowing that their hope comes from Jesus and not their circumstances and if of course you understand that point of exaltation then you can make sense of the opposite as well, which is what this passage teaches us about humiliation. The rich can boast in their humiliation, knowing that even though their riches may run out, their hope in Christ never will. Because here's something we know to be true. There can, there can come a, a day when you burn through all of your money, right? There can come a day when stock markets crash and, and wealth will, will run out and, and the resources that you have in this life will fail you. And, and the truth is that maybe in, in some way there are many in our community, many in our state right now who are feeling this. Because if you're, 
if, you're, if your wealth and, and your money are tied in any way to uh, commodities like oil, natural gas, those things, or if, you're, if your wealth is tied, you know, the way that you make money and those things are tied to things like the you know, agriculture, cattle industry, and those things, the, all of those things are depressed right now, right? All of those things are in a, in a slump, so to speak. I mean, oil is down at 20-something dollars per barrel, right? The cattle prices are, are far less than what they've been. And, and it, we feel that in our community. We feel the financial pinch that that puts on us. And even that is a great reminder to us of the truth of this lesson. Because riches will fail you. If your hope and your trust are in your riches or in your wealth, you need to know this, that wealth is temporary. And that there, someday your wealth will fail you. Maybe not in this life, but certainly in the next, right? Because regardless of how much wealth you have, when you die, it stays here, right? When you die, whatever is in your bank account, it stays there. You can't take it with it. You don't roll that over into your heavenly account someday, right? Wealth is temporary. Riches do not last. But praise God that the rich, though they may be humiliated someday, have everything that they need in Jesus. Though their wealth may fail them, though their bank accounts may be emptied out, if your hope is not in your money, in your wealth, then in that day you have nothing to fear. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And that's the point that James is writing about here. We ought not to trust in our riches, in our wealth, because honestly, it can all go away tomorrow. But instead, we ought to place our hope in Jesus, knowing that in Christ, our hope will never run out. Our hope will never be, will never be taken away from us. So the poor and the rich need to consider their life. The poor and the rich need to examine their wealth or their lack thereof, right? And they need to know that regardless of what they have, if their hope is in Jesus, then they have everything. And so here's the principle that we learn from this when, when we consider this, right? Here's what verses 9 and 10 teach us, and then we'll move into uh, verse 12 in, in a moment and, and see what it teaches us about perseverance. But verses 9 and 10 and 11 teach us this, that your wealth and your circumstances should not define your attitude. They should not define your worship. They should not define your call, nor should they define your responsibility with the gospel. Because those things are not based on your circumstances. So whether you have everything that you need materially or whether you, whether you want for many of the things that, that you want and, and, and even perhaps need, your wealth and your circumstances shouldn't define your attitude toward God and toward others. So whether, you, so whether you're rich or poor, here's the point. Be glad and rejoice in the Lord, right? Don't let that affect your attitude. You know, some of the, some of the sweetest days that I can think back on in, 
in our marriage, in Rayleigh and I, in, in, the, in our marriage, we're in the earliest days when we had literally nothing, right? We lived in, uh, and that's not to say that we've got it all now, because certainly, uh, like many of you, we think, oh man, if we just had the money, we could do this or this or this or this, right? But I think back to those early days in our marriage when, when you know, a, a $20,000 salary made us think, oh my, we were rich, you know? We are rich, and we lived in a little 600-square-foot apartment. We literally felt like you could, reach, you, know, you could reach out from one side and touch the other side, and, and we would have people over, and we would all cram in you know, that, that, that little space. And yet, and yet, in those days, when we were first getting on our feet as a couple, as, as, as a husband and wife, kind of as, as our own autonomous unit, you know, just us, and we were establishing our identity, we learned so many lessons in those days of, depending on the Lord and looking to Him and not trusting in our circumstances. And I think, you know, those, those lessons that we learned, God has intended for us to carry those lessons with us throughout a, a lifetime of, of life together and, and raising a family and ministry and all that God leads us through. And, and we've been determined to not forget those lessons that we've learned in those days. Because our wealth and our circumstances shouldn't define our attitude. They shouldn't define your worship. For some, it's really difficult to praise God when they feel like everything in this life has been taken from them. But can I tell you that if, if you find it hard to worship when, when your pocketbook is a little lighter, if you find it hard to worship when you're going through some difficult times financially, then then it's revealing to you what your true God is, right? It reveals to us whether, whether or not you worship God or you worship money. And Jesus says plainly that you cannot worship both, right? You cannot worship God and money. You cannot serve two masters. Your wealth and your circumstances should not define your call. You don't just... You don't just serve the Lord because you feel like materially you have every. You don't just tithe and give and, and participate in his kingdom work because you think, well, we've, we've got enough. There's enough left over. If you're waiting for there to be enough left over, there's probably never going to be enough left over. But what you have should not define your call. It should not define your, your obedience to the Lord's call in your life and, and the way that you follow through with what his word teaches. And your wealth and your circumstances should not define your responsibility to steward your resources for the gospel, for God's kingdom and his glory. Every one of us have a responsibility. Rich or poor, we share alike a responsibility to use what God has given us to build his kingdom in this world. We have a responsibility with the gospel to make much of Jesus, to honor him and serve him with our lives. So rich or poor, it doesn't matter. Notice the language that he uses in verse 10 and 11. He talks about how, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, talking about the rich. The sun rises with its scorching heat, withers the grass, its flower falls, beauty perishes. And he says, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits point is that it doesn't matter whether you have it all or whether you think that you have nothing. 
If you have Jesus and your hope is in Jesus, then you have everything that you need in this life. And so this passage teaches us about exaltation, about humiliation, and finally about perseverance. In verse 12, we read, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Again, the connection with the Beatitudes, right? Again, the connection with the language even of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is the man. We see that pattern in the the Beatitudes that I read from Matthew 5. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. To remain steadfast is to persevere. And, and, And if you look at translations like the New American Standard or the NIV, both of those both of those translations even translate those words, remain steadfast, to be persevere. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. So this passage teaches us a lesson about our perseverance, that we can persevere through trials knowing that the reward that awaits us is greater than anything that we might endure in this life. You know, here's what I, here's what I see when we study this, is that the uncertainty of our riches ought to be measured against the certainty of our hope in Christ. The uncertainty of our riches. Everything that we've talked about so far, the fact that that your wealth can dry up, that that your resources, your material resources can, can go away tomorrow. They can be gone. They can be taken from you. The bottom can fall out. But that uncertainty of our riches should be measured against the certainty of our hope that is in Jesus. That certainty of hope in Jesus. Here's... Here is how the author of Hebrews refers to that in Hebrews chapter 9, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. The author of Hebrews refers to that certainty of our hope as a a sure and certain hope that, that he writes is an anchor for our souls, an anchor for our souls, meaning that regardless of the storms that we go through in this life, regardless of how things rise or fall given our circumstances, we know that the hope that we have in Jesus is an anchor for our souls, that it's certain, that it can be counted on. In other words, you can build your life on that foundation of hope that you have in Jesus, regardless of your circumstance. And so that that certainty of our hope in Jesus is what helps us to persevere through the trials that we face in life, because we know that Regardless of the ups and downs that life throws at us, regardless of what we face in this life, the reward that awaits us for our faithfulness, for our perseverance, is greater than anything in this life. Verse 12 says, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. He will receive the crown of life. That's the reward that's waiting us if we persevere. If we if we endure, the, the rich who know that their wealth can leave them, if they will rejoice in their humiliation, the poor who may have real want materially in this life, yet have everything that they need in Jesus, if they will rejoice in their exaltation, and, and if both rich and poor together will persevere through the trials of this life, the point is, that the reward that is awaiting us, this crown of life is worth it. The reward that is waiting us is worth it. The uncertainty of our riches should be measured against the certainty of our hope in Jesus. And then he says, this crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 
So here's the point. God has promised this crown of life. God has promised this reward to those who love him. And in its context here, what he means by those who love him, those who trust in Jesus, those who place their hope and their trust in him, those who, who look to him as the savior and master of their life, right? Those who have, who have committed their lives to him. Those who have called on the name of Jesus for their salvation. That's the point of what James is writing. So, in other words, if we will trust in Jesus for our salvation, regardless of our circumstance in this life, we now receive a hope that will never fail us. A hope that will carry us through any circumstance in this life. A hope that is greater than our, than our wealth, than our resources. A hope that does not limit nor does it define our attitude, our worship. It does not define our responsibility with the gospel. It does not define the, the hope that we have in, in this life. And so, if we will persevere through the trials of this life, there is a crown of life awaiting us. I wonder today, when you think about your life, all of us have to ask this question, where do I fit in all of this? Do I identify with the lowly, the lowly brother? Do I identify with the rich? Do I, am, am I maybe somewhere in between? Have I been on both sides of that equation? Have, have I lived life literally long enough and, and, and been in situations where I w- was rich and situations where I was poor? Where do you fit in that equation? And wherever you find yourself, wherever you think you fall on that spectrum of maybe, maybe rich versus poor, the point is there is there's a responsibility that we have to endure through the trials of this life, to persevere, to remain steadfast through the ups and downs of this life, knowing that if we will endure those things by, by banking on, by counting on, by, by believing in the hope that is ours because of Jesus, there is a reward that awaits us that's greater than anything that we might gain in this life. The crown of life that he has promised to those who love him. Today, are you trusting in the hope that you have because of Jesus? Are you living your life in such a way that you're going to steward all of the resources that you've been given so that at the end of your life you might receive that crown of life because you've loved and trusted in him? Or are you wasting what God has given you? Are you living foolishly thinking that it's going to last forever? If you're lowly, you ought to rejoice in your exaltation. If you are rich, if you are high in position, then you ought, to, you ought to rejoice in your humiliation because you know that you have everything you need in Jesus. And if that hope carries you, if that hope drives you to persevere through your trials, then there is a crown of life waiting for you. And the reward that is on the other side is greater than anything this world has to offer. Where is your hope? Is it in your circumstances or it is in your Savior? Just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation, a time of response. And in that moment of invitation, today, if you have, if you have recognized that you have been banking on, counting on the wrong things, maybe you are counting on, 
on, on, on your ship to come in, right? Maybe, maybe you're counting on wealth to come and working towards something that you don't have. And today, the Lord has used this passage to open your eyes and see that you're chasing after the wrong things. Today, are you willing to place your hope in your Savior and not your circumstance? Maybe you today have had your eyes open to reveal to you that you are counting on what you have amassed, the wealth, the resources that you have gained in this life. And if you were to be honest, you would say, you know what, my hope is in my stuff, it's in my things. Today, would you place your hope in your Savior and not in your stuff? So that you might persevere, so that you might endure and receive this crown of life that is waiting for those who remain steadfast through the trials. In that moment, in, in just a moment when we're singing this song of response, maybe some today would, you would say, you know, if I was to be honest, there's never been a time in my life when I've truly surrendered my life to Jesus. And so to this point in my life, all of my hope, all of my trust has been in me. It's been in what I can do, what I can provide just through my, own, through my own deeds, my own power, and my own strength. I, I've been my own Savior. And today you recognize that, that it's not enough, that you aren't enough, to, you don't have enough to save yourself. And today would you be willing to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, to turn away from self-reliance, to turn away from trusting in or working that out on your own and instead to trust the one who has everything that you need so that you might receive from him a hope that would be an anchor for your soul, a hope that would carry you through the ups and the downs of this life. And you, I pray that you would come today. Brad and I will be standing here at the front as Doug and our other worship team members lead us through this time of response. And and if you're ready to trust in Jesus today, we would love to walk you through a simple prayer of commitment that, would, that you would trust in Him and not in yourself and not in your things. And if you recognize today that maybe you've trusted in Jesus for your salvation, but you still are looking to your stuff day in and day out, and, and, and maybe Jesus is your Savior, but you're poorly managing the things that He's entrusted to you, and today, I pray that you would come and you would make that right with God. Our altars will be open for you to pray again. Our staff will be here at the front. We would love to pray with you, to walk you through that, to offer words of encouragement, offer words of direction even. Let's be clear that the call for us today is to trust in Jesus and nothing else in this life because nothing else will sustain us. And so in our time of response today, I pray that you would respond in such a way that when, when you walk out these doors, you know for certain that you, are in, that you are entrusting your life to Jesus and the hope that he brings and nothing else to get you through. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? I want to offer a word of prayer before our time of response. And even as I pray, I, I want to encourage you now to go before the Lord and, and just ask him, God, what? Where do I fit in this picture, in this equation? God, where, do I, where, where does my life fit in all of this? And that today, if he's leading you to turn away from your things, or, or maybe even you might say your lack of, you would be willing to do that so that you might hope fully in Jesus and nothing else. God, today, open our eyes to see 
where our hope and our trust really is settled. Are we trusting in ourselves? Are we trusting in our wealth, our resources? Are we trusting in, in the things that we have in this life? Lord, are we trusting in you? I pray, God, that you would help us to trust in you and you only so that in times of plenty and in times of want, Lord, we will be carried through by the hope that we have in Jesus. We will persevere. We will remain steadfast knowing that by faith in you, we have everything that we need in this life. Reveal to us the, the, the true God that we are seeking. Are we seeking in the, the gods of wealth and, and the gods of circumstance? Or are we trusting in you, the one true God, for our salvation, for our hope? And we pray this now in your name. Amen. As we stand together to sing... Our altars will be open. This time of response, I challenge you. If you're ready.